uh, before, I, before I begin, um, I was not supposed to be here, here today. Um, Pastor Mike Reed was, was supposed to be preaching today. Uh, just this past Friday, we were having dinner. My wife and I were having dinner with the Reeds and, and Don and Donna Hoist at their house. And um, he got invited by Peter Ochoa, who just became an elder, to go play ultimate, ultimate Frisbee. Uh, to go play ultimate Frisbee with some friends for a, a birthday party. And uh, we went home. My wife, my wife actually said, you better be careful because when you do that stuff, Mike, you typically get hurt. And I'm, I'm, I have a feeling he might get hurt as well. And you'll have to fill in and, and preach for him. So I got a call yesterday around one o'clock, and uh, Mike was severely injured. He, he, like, ripped up his hamstring, and he can barely walk right now. He was, and it was, so please, please know that, that it, would, it, would, it would not be intelligent for him to be up here preaching right now. That would be the worst thing for his health. So be, be praying for him, for his heart to be encouraged, and for healing. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is, a year ago, he hired an associate pastor, Named, and that's me. <laughs> and uh, I like to teach the Bible, so hopefully you guys are willing to, uh, to walk with me today. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 100. The Lord was so good. The Lord was so good yesterday. I was really, uh, Pastor Mike was like, you know what, just, just, you know, just preach, a, preach an old one. And I said, maybe that's what I'll do. So I came in, and my wife was gracious. We even had plans last night. She said, no, go into the church and, and get your heart ready. So... Uh, I was looking through the Psalms, and, and Psalm 100 came, and, and the Lord was, he was very kind. Um, it, just, it just came, and it's going to be a short and sweet one today. It's a short and sweet Psalm, so it'll be a short and sweet uh, sermon. But let me just give you a little bit of background on Psalm 100 for me personally, uh, and then I'll read it, and we'll pray, and we'll dive uh, right in. Before my wife and I uh, moved to North Jersey about... Uh, seven years ago, we lived in the Philly area, and uh, I used to be a Bible teacher for freshmen through seniors at a, at a small Christian school. It was a wonderful school, Delaware County Christian School. If you ever go in the Philly area, send your kids there. It's great. Um, taught there for a couple of years. My wife was a labor and delivery nurse at UPenn Hospital, and we were not, unfortunately, we were not members of a church, but we regularly attended um, a pretty, pretty famous church, pretty well-known old church named 10th Presbyterian Church. It's where Phil Riken used to be the pastor. He was a senior pastor there. He's now the, the president of Wheaton College. Uh, Paul Tripp used to be a pastor there, and Dr. Liam Gallagher is there now. And it's an extremely traditional church, uh, you know, formal. People wear suit and ties. They get up, they stand up and sit down, stand up, sit down, and recite the Apostles' Creed, sing hymns, old hymns, and... Um, but before you throw stones at, at, at churches like that, I mean, that's, that's where my wife and I really learned how to worship the Lord. Uh, that's where we learned how to, how to approach God on a Sunday with reverence and awe. It's where we learned to cherish preaching over and above anything and above everything. Um, I mean, Phil Riken and Paul Tripp and, and Dr. Liam Gallagher, you can look these guys up there. They're pretty well known. I mean, they just lifted up Jesus week after week. And I just remember weeping multiple, on multiple occasions uh, just, just being stunned that I'm a Christian, stunned that I believe Jesus, stunned that I love Jesus. Um, and when they would start the service, the first thing they would do is they would read Psalm 100. Uh, and Psalm 100 is basically a call to worship. Uh, and they would, it would, they would recite it, people would stand up, and they'd start singing the Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father and to the Son and Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning and is and never shall be, world without end. Amen, amen. Uh, I sang it in the first service. I'm not going to sing it for you, for you now. So 
That's, that's uh, to your benefit. Um, so I'm going to read Psalm 100 as they would do it, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive, dive right in. This is the word of God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this call to worship. We ask you now for your help. We pray specifically for Pastor Mike uh, that you would uh, make your presence uh, deeply felt and cherished and known. I encourage him, heal him quickly, uh, prevent him from being discouraged um, as he's away from us now. Pray for me, Lord, that you would help me to, to preach with joy and courage and, and love and a pastoral heart. Prepare these hearts before me now, um, before you, Lord, to receive your word with all eagerness. And may Jesus Christ be exalted and lifted up and magnified in all of our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Psalm 100, uh, this is a, it's a very simple structure. Verses one and two is, the, is a call to worship. Verse three is a reason for why you should worship him. Verse four is another call to worship. And verse five is the second reason why you should worship this Lord. Uh, and so if you're a note taker, I'll just kind of give you the outline really quick and that'll help you follow along. Uh, we are called to worship the Lord because number one, we are his, and number two, he is ours. That's it. We are enticed, we are drawn into, we are, we are commanded, we are compelled to be enthralled with the greatness of our God because number one, we are his, and number two, he is ours. Look at the first call to worship in verses one through two. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And if you notice, these are commands to make a noise, to sing, and to serve him. But that's not all he's commanded, because we all know that we can do each of those three things without any sort of emotions or affections toward the Lord at all. We can do it with an empty heart, with a dry heart, with a stale heart being numb to him, but we could be going through the motions. We could sing to him, we could serve him, we come into his presence, but feel nothing. You can make your child do the dishes out of obedience, but if they are rolling their eyes at you, and they are grumbling loud and clear for the mom and dad to hear, that does not please mom and dad. Nor is God honored by noise, service, and singing that is empty of joy and delight. This is why... In the call to worship, he says, make a joyful noise. In verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And the reason why his presence is so relevant is Pastor Mike preached on Psalm 16 last week. And the very last verse, what does it say? In your presence is fullness of what? Joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when we, when we come into the presence of God, 
In the presence of this God, it instills joy, it instills gladness. The response in our hearts should be one that stirs up our affections. But God is not honored and glorified merely by emotionalism. If those emotions are not ignited and stirred up and fanned into flame by true knowledge about who God is and what he has done, it is not God-honoring affection. So the first reason why we are called to worship this God with make a joyful noise, why we are called to serve him with gladness, reason number one, because we are his. Look at verse three. Here's the first reason. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The joyful noise and the glad service that we are commanded to partake in can only be aroused by knowing that God is God. And he refers to him with two names. He says, know that the Lord, and maybe in your Bible it has the Lord in all caps. That just signifies the Hebrew name of God, the covenant name of God by which he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, which is Yahweh. Whom shall I say sent me to the Israelites? And God says, tell them I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. And that simply means that God has always been, he is now, and he forever will be. If you work in Bergen Kids, and one of the kids raises their hands and they say, Teacher, where did God come from? You look them in the eye and you say, God came from nowhere. We came from mommy and daddy, but God has no mommy and daddy. He, he came from nowhere. He has always been, and you can trust him. You can be sure that this God is stable, this God is secure, this God is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our worship. He's the bedrock of all reality, all reality that we know of today would not be were it not for this God who is. But he says, know that the Lord, he is God. The Hebrew name is Elohim. Know that Yahweh, he is Elohim. It's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's this idea that the God is transcended, that he is sitting high upon the throne, that he is exalted, and he wields all things for his, for his ultimate glory, that he is sovereign over everything, that he wields the divine and holy scepter by which he governs solar systems and galaxies and stars all the way down to the molecules and atoms and even the dust that settles on the dashboard of your car. I want to ask, I asked the first service and I'll ask you, do you believe that each particle of dust that's on your dashboard right now, do you think that, that each one of those particles just so happened to fall there without God's appointment? He is Elohim. When Jesus told water molecules to sit still, they sat down. Even the dust on your car is under the holy sovereign hand of Elohim. But what does the psalmist say about God? Verse 3, second half, verse 3. It is he who made us. We are his and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
If you look at the first, the, the, the middle phrase in verse 3, it is he who made us and we are his. Maybe your Bible has a footnote. My Bible has a footnote and it offers a different translation of the verse down below. And the translation is, and not we ourselves. So let's read it that way. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. That is, God not only made us, he's the one who defines us. We did not make ourselves, we never will make ourselves, we do not define ourselves and have no right to define ourselves. God makes us and God says who we are. And if you think about it, this is unbelievably offensive to American culture today. If the average secular unbelieving person were to put this verse in their own words, it would read, it is I who make me and not anyone else. Cultural experts and sociologists refer to this view of life, this philosophy, this, this worldview as expressive individualism, which says in order for you to be you, in order for you to, to find fulfillment, to find purpose and meaning and joy, what you have to do is do not look to something outside of yourself for validation or affirmation or identity. Look on the inside. Find, find the inner voice. Find the inner desires, the deepest desires of who you are. Find those that mysterious. You ever hear people say, I just have to go find myself. You're going on the inside, finding this inner you, and then at all costs, regardless of what anyone says, you should express that. And only then can you really find fulfillment and joy. And if anyone opposes you in that, that is the supreme sin of American culture. In order for me to be me, I must define myself, create my own identity. No person, parent, or God defines who I am. To put it philosophically, my existence comes before my essence. I come into existence, into this world. I have no essence. It is my job for the rest of my life through my choices, through my career, through my relationships to then formulate who I am. I am totally free. No God can define who I am. And this belief system comes out in the following cultural cliches. You shouldn't care what people think about you. Just do what makes you happy. Nobody has the right to tell me how to live or how or who I can love. Who, I, who am I to say that one person's lifestyle is wrong? As long as they aren't hurting anyone, it should be okay. And last but not least, I just have to be myself and not care what anyone else says. These sayings are symptoms of a heart that has been indoctrinated with American theology. And if you have said these things before, it very, may, very well may be that you have, have been more indoctrinated by American culture than the scriptures themselves. And the problem with this view of life is that it's impossible and it's crushing. 
It's impossible because no one can create, truly create their own values. Everyone inherits some sort of standard by which to verify which inner voice to obey because we all have inner desires within us that conflict all the time. I've got one desire that tells me to go this way. I've got another desire, the inner longings to make me go this way. Which one do I, and these things conflict. Which one do I obey? You take your cues from some external authority. It's either from the almighty American cultural doctrine or the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's impossible. It isn't whether or not you have an authority that defines you, but which one defines you. And it's crushing. If you, if you try to live out expressive individualism, this idea of you have to define who you are and no one can tell you from right or wrong, it's going to crush you because in your attempt, you, you may claim, you may claim that you don't care what anyone else thinks about you and you only care about what you think about you. You and I both know be honest with yourself. You and I both know that will never be enough. For, for, you to think, for you to say, here's my inner voice. I need to live that out, and I don't care what anyone says. I affirm me. You, you are living contrary to the very nature, your very, the very way you were created and designed to be. We were, we were created with this inner desire to find some sort of affirmation. And you're depriving yourself of some of the highest pleasures, which is to receive praise and affirmation from the praiseworthy. It is Jesus Christ who obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you trust in that Lord, that praiseworthy one, that affirmation is freely given to you. So why is this psalm better? Because it's not about who you are. It's whose you are. You may have heard it put that way before because it's, a, it's all about who you belong to. This God, the God of Psalm 100, offers an identity that is freely given, not duly earned. The Lord gives affirmation. He gives justification. He declares you as acceptable in his sight and that is received, not achieved. But it was not cheap. This identity and this affirmation from the living God was purchased by the infinitely worthy blood of Jesus Christ. And it's free. It costs God everything, and it costs you nothing. And that's why we can confidently say in the last part of verse 3 we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I belong to God. I am his sheep. He is my shepherd who cares for my soul, and he will carry me into eternity. I found this psalm last year. I can't believe it. I just love the Bible. I try to read the Bible once a year, and each year I am stunned with new things, and I found this last year. Psalm 28, verse 9. Lord, be their shepherd and carry them forever. That's the safest place to be. 
That's the best place to be. That's the most secure place to be in the strong arms of the divine shepherd, Jesus Christ, who carries you forever. So knowing that the Lord is God and that you are free to let him define you, lead you, shepherd you, and possess you forever makes your heart burn with a joyful noise and makes gladness explode as you serve him at all cost. And we can do this even more so today because we're on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. The true good shepherd is Jesus Christ who laid down his life for unworthy sheep. We have strayed. We have all gone our own way. We've all said, I'm going to find happiness in my way. I don't need you, God. I'm going to find happiness in my own path. I'm going I'm to be a pathfinder. I'm going to develop my own way and find joy there. And it always ends in futility. And Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who calls all of us back to him. Are not those words in John 10, 27, 28 so precious? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. This is Jesus talking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the first reason we are called to worship this God is because we belong to him and we're defined by him. And this one, this person that we belong to, that we're defined by, is the Lord, the one who is now and forever will be, the one who is Elohim, the one who reigns and rules over all things. And that leads us into the second call to worship. Look at verse four. Enter his gates. He's pleading with you again. Come on, come on in. It's cold outside, get inside. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. This again is not a mechanical form of thanking. Anyone can say thank you. But if you do not feel thankful, it does not honor the person you are truly saying thankful to. Anyone can say bless you, but if you do not feel genuine affection for the person and genuine good desire to see them blessed, that does not honor the person, so too God is calling us to give thanks to him with feelings of deep gratitude in our hearts. But remember, God is not honored and glorified by mere thankful feelings, but thankful feelings in response to who he is and what he does. So the psalmist gives another reason. We're called to worship this God. We are invited to be enthralled with this Lord because number one, we are his and number two, he is ours. Verse five. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. If you read your Bible at all, you're familiar with this little verse here. It's kind of a refrain that comes up a lot throughout the Bible. And it testifies to God's covenant faithfulness to his people. By which he has graciously bound himself to undeserving sinners. And promises that, kind of like a marriage vow, within this vow he promises for him to be ours and us to belong to him forever. And all that God is, he promises to be that for you for all eternity. 
And so what does he promise to be for us? What is it about God are you given? There's three things there, right? The Lord is good. You're given his, you are given a good God. A good God is yours. All that God does is ultimately for the good of his sheep and the glory of his name. He is goodness itself. He cannot do anything but good for those who are his. The only reason that we as sheep could ever go out into the world with fearlessness, though there are fierce wolves storming around us, is because the lion, Jesus Christ, is always padding by our side, watching over us wherever we go. You can trust that his good character will ensure that everything that comes your way is for your good. We all Christians know Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. But we dare not try to infuse our definition of good into that verse. We need to let God define what the good is. And you got to keep reading the verse in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There, there is a stream of goodness that is individually packaged and flowing your way to each individual person who belongs to him. All the goodness is flowing towards your way. But here's the thing. Some of the things in that stream of goodness towards you, some of those things are pleasant and some of those things are painful. Some of those things are sweet and some of those things are bitter. And you are called to believe that even though those things come your way, they are all being used by this good God to conform and shape and chisel like sandpaper. Sandpaper hurts. If you're putting sandpaper on the skin, but he's smoothing you out, shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ. And we will all one day, it says in the Apostle John, says in 1 John, that when Jesus Christ comes to return, we shall be made like him because we shall see him as he is. But that's not all. There's more. It is not just the goodness of God that is yours. It is also his steadfast and eternal love. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures Forever. This is the famous Hebrew word in the Old Testament, hesed. This idea of God's love is committed to you. It's never going to stop flowing towards you. It's never going to. It's never going to run dry. If you have children, I command you in the name of Jesus to buy the Jesus Storybook Bible. We go through that book a couple times a year with our with our little girls, and Sally Lord Jones uh, wrote it. And she has the best definition of steadfast love in the book. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His love for you will never end. His love for you will never run dry. It will flow like an eternal stream for ages upon ages upon ages. And none of it is deserved. His love does not get withheld 
and then unleashed upon those who clean themselves up and, and pretty themselves up before God. God does not love the, lo- the, the lovely. His love is lavished upon those who are leprous in the soul. And he's demonstrated and proved this love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates, shows, displays, exhibits, puts on plain for everyone to see. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It does not say while we were cleaned up, he died for us. And lastly, his faithfulness is ours. And his faithfulness to all generations, last phrase in the psalm. This God is committed to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never give up on you. He will never, ever abandon you. On your way home from work today, he's with you. Lord willing, if you wake up tomorrow, he's with you. If you get fired from your job, he's with you. If you find out that you have cancer, he is with you. He is with you. He never promises health. He never promises wealth. He promises you himself. Is that enough? And tragically, I think in the church today, we have grown accustomed to hearing this. Oh, God is with us. God is with us. And maybe to help you illustrate just how profound and precious this should be to us, I recommend you all doing this. Every summer, I try to read one or two Christian biographies. Uh, This summer, I'm reading John Patton. Don't know if you guys have heard of him. He was a missionary to cannibals. Cannibals, that, that is, they eat people. This man had a passion and a desire to see these people come to know Jesus Christ. And it was on the New Hebrides Islands, and he took his wife and his children, excuse me, his one-child baby boy. He took his family to cannibals to preach the gospel. You're either insane or you believe in a sovereign, almighty, everlasting God who is with you and for you and though you perish, he will see to it that you see Jesus Christ in the end face to face. And the sovereignty of God, this, this is the very thing. That's insane. What's even crazier is that soon after he arrived at the, uh, in the islands, his wife got ill and, uh, very quickly passed away. And then two weeks after that, his newborn baby boy died. And he had to dig two graves and bury them. And he was left utterly alone on these islands. Last time I checked, most of us are saying, I'm out of here. I'm out. The only thing that preserved him from going insane and continuing to relentlessly love these people with the gospel is God's faithful presence. Listen to his own words. 
This is talking about when he lost his wife and little boy. Stunned by that dreadful loss, in entering upon this field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time to almost give way. He almost went insane. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me, and that spot by the graves, that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Were it not for Jesus and the fellowship he gave to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In Christ's words, Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. Why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are your fears? What keeps you up at night? God is with you. The Lord is with you. Elohim is with you. He reigns, he rules, he is sovereign over all. And he is a good father. He has proven his love for you in death, in the death of Jesus Christ. Fear not, for he is with you. Be not dismayed, for he is your God. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will hold you up with his victorious right hand. I hope you all are enticed to worship Jesus today because you are his and he is yours. And he was willing to have his own son crucified to ensure that would be yours forever. You can face anything. What are you facing right now? What are you facing right now? that the presence of God, that the blood-bought presence of God cannot empower you and give you courage to face. Let's pray. Maybe you just need to meditate a little bit today upon the fact that you belong to God. Maybe you have, uh, you've claimed to be a Christian and you have, frankly, lived the past few days, weeks, months, years, thinking that you belong to yourself. You claim to belong to God, but if you look at your life, what rules you is your own passions and desires and your own selfish ambitions, and, and it's left you empty and dry. I need to come back to the Lord. Or maybe you need to meditate upon the fact that he is yours. 
that he is with you, that he is for you, and that by renouncing all attempts to live on your own, to save yourself and to do it in your own strength, you turn from that and you trust in Jesus once again and let his presence give you the confidence and the courage you need to face whatever it is and to know that he will sustain you to the end. He will carry you to the end. He is faithful. Father, we thank you so much for this call to worship. Thank you that uh, we are yours and you are ours and that's all we need. That's it. That's where life is found. If we have that, we have the sun and the solar system of our lives. And everything begins to orbit rightly. Encourage us now. Entice us. Lead us into worship. These last few songs. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.